2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner, and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug, uh, let's take Nancy's call.
1: Hi, Nancy. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Hi,
3: thank
4: you for taking my call. All right. Um, I won't bore you with all the court details, but my husband and I kind of got started late um, in our financial planning um, just by just some some. Um, things that have happened. But anyway, um, what I want to ask you is, we have two homes. We have one, a vacation home, and then just our primary residence. And I wonder, how smart is that to let real estate be part of your financial planning for the long term? Like well, we're thinking that you know, if we had to later in life, we could sell one of the homes, and we would have that money, and maybe it would appreciate through the years.
1: Boo, bad Does move. that
4: that doesn't make sense?
1: Bad move. Okay. Um, let's let's get a little closer though into some numbers. For some people, it's fine, but my knee jerk reaction is boo, bad move. Okay. Uh, let's take a look at some numbers. How how old are you? I'm forty. Forty years old. How old's your husband?
4: He's forty four.
1: Husband's forty four, and wife is forty. i uh, any children at home? Yes. How would it have, Two teenagers, 13
4: and 16.
1: All right, two teenagers. Income of the husband?
4: Uh, about 45.
1: 45. Income of the wife?
4: About 35.
1: 35. 70, 80,000 combined income. Investment portfolio, what does it look like on the non-retirement investments?
4: It's pretty low. We mm-hmm. have about 5,000 in stocks and bonds, and we only have 500 in savings.
1: Okay. So and basically, reasons, okay. So basically, no investment portfolio. What about on the retirement side?
4: Um, I have a retirement at work, and I think it's maybe like maybe forty-six, something like mm-hmm.
1: that. And husband's retirement plan? He has nothing. No retirement mm-hmm. plan. Okay. Um, let's go over to the residence. How much is the residence worth?
4: Um, each one is worth about one hundred and twenty.
1: One hundred and twenty thousand.
4: One of them we just bought. Okay. So
1: and uh, what's the equity in the vacation home?
4: It's twenty thousand.
1: All right, twenty thousand equity. So you had twenty thousand dollars to invest uh, somewhere, and you put it in the vacation home. Right. Okay. Well, uh, you're right. Um, when you began by telling me, you, you know, it's not a real pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really an accident waiting to happen, and it scares me looking at a situation like this. Uh, bottom line is. You've got an $80,000 income, you certainly can't afford to maintain two mortgages and you shouldn't maintain two mortgages and there's no reason to. Uh, Real estate uh, certainly should not be part of your investment portfolio by any means Uh, and basically you uh, uh, you should be focusing on accumulation as rapidly as possible under the means of what we call a pay yourself first plan. What are your living expenses Nancy?
4: Uh, about what we make.
1: <laughs> you're spending 80000 a year?
4: Yeah, because we have two homes. And the problem is... No,
1: forget, okay. Now, what's the mortgage in the second home?
4: Um, it's about 1000 a month.
1: 1000 a month. So what you're telling me is that if you didn't have that vacation home, you could invest 1000 a month plus have 20000 as a starter kit. Right. Well, that's what you should do.
4: But yeah. the problem is we have a feeling that if we sold the home, we would lose our shirt. Tough. That's why I'm thinking
1: nope. that we should hang on to it. Wrong. Okay. Wrong move. Wrong move. You see, you have a hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollar thing that you've got there, but you've got an eighty thousand dollar. No, you've got a hundred thousand dollar debt. Right. Well, if all it means is when you say lose your shirt, you might lose your twenty thousand. Right. But yeah. you're not going to lose. But but I don't like you sitting there with virtually nothing in savings. Your husband having a zero retirement plan. You having barely nothing in your retirement plan, two teenagers at home, and uh, you are saying that I could be investing at a thousand a month into mutual funds, but uh, I'd rather have an IOU of a hundred thousand dollars.
4: Yeah, well, we wouldn't rather have it. We just have a feeling that it might be hard to get rid of.
1: Well, I'd get rid of it anyway. Okay, I'd get I'd get out of it, and I'd do just the same thing as if you bought it bought yourself a a stock, and it was down twenty thousand. And you lost, well you lost and go on.
4: All right. So we cut but, our losses.
1: Yeah, uh yeah, I, I definitely would try and get yourself into you've got to be accumulating. Right. You see, you have what you must reach is a point where you have an accumulated portfolio of investments equal the income from which is equal to your lifestyle. So if you're spending uh, let me see. I wonder what your expenses are without the taxes and without the, the, um, the one mortgage.
3: If you want to call us during the week to set up an appointment for yourself, give me a call at 919-872-7000, and we will get started. We'll make a list of the questions that are on your mind.
1: Let's say that maybe you're spending about 60000 a year. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that means you need roughly, uh, say, 700000 in an investment portfolio. Okay. Because that could produce the 60000 a year income, which would give you the security that you're after. Okay. And the only way you're going to get it is, and the good thing is you're only 40 years old. Mm-hmm. You do have 20 years compounding in front of you. Of course, the, the risky thing is also that somebody could lose their job. Right. And so, you know, I, I my advice would be, you know, down and dirty. Get, put it up for sale, get rid of it immediately. Yeah. And uh, if you come out having lost your 20000 uh, okay, you lost your twenty thousand. At least you can invest a thousand a month for the next twenty years. Right. Uh, and that would be a large, large number, by the way.
4: Well, you know, just to kind of I guess paint a better picture, our strategy was we thought, okay, we'll buy this house, it'll be paid for in fifteen years because we have a fifteen year mortgage and this will be our what's this we will we'll we'll retire there. But you know what? It's gonna be too much house for us and too much
1: yard, and
4: it's like we. Won't Besides,
1: what good does it do to retire, and have a house paid for, and have no food in the refrigerator right. in the kitchen? I know you can't eat that house. Yeah, financial security isn't the home. Financial security is the uh the the income stream that supports the lifestyle. So many people have that confusion. They think if they're going to have that big house with brick and mortar paid for, right? But that's not financial security. Right. Okay. Well,
4: thank you. That's kind of sure what welcome. we've been thinking, and you've confirmed that for
1: us. Good for you, Nancy. Thank you. Okay. And good if
4: luck, I, Nancy.
2: If I can send you any uh, information that we have, I'll be happy to do so. If you'll just call me at the office. Okay. And what's that number? And in? that number in Raleigh is 872-7000. Thank it's you. USA seven thousand. Thank you very much. All right. And take I'd like care. to hear
1: the day you get the house sold, You call me on the air and let me know you did it. All right. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you. Good Nancy. luck.
2: Bye. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, that's Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner and Linda Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF. Well, that was certainly an interesting call, wasn't it, Doug? And Deborah? Yeah, I
1: think I think Nancy's situation is not uh uncommon. It's, it's not un, it's not not a <laughs> it's not uncommon, you're right, Linda. And also, I'm not terribly Uh, distraught about it because she's so young, only 40 years old. There's about 25 years between her and retirement age.
2: Well, I appreciated the tone of her voice was, was that this is a learning moment for us because sometimes when you're young, you may make decisions that maybe didn't work out in your best interest. But if you can put the brakes on the situation and move in a different direction where you're able to capture those funds
3: and redirect them. Right, Debs? That's right. I mean, you can you can decide uh, early on to do something that later on you get advice on and you realize, well, you know, I probably should have done things differently. And when you do, and you, you do turn that corner and you move away from, for example, in this situation, having an IOU of 100000 to just getting rid of it and removing it and immediately beginning to improve your situation by having $1,000 a month be invested, that's that's a huge amount of time. That's 25 years and $1,000 a month. You are absolutely right. For the young ones, it's a learning moment. Let's
2: make some lemonade out of a lemon situation.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: we are located in Raleigh, North Carolina. And if you would like to schedule an appointment, call us at Lewis Financial Management. We'll be happy to take uh, your number and call you back. Or if you leave us your information or if we are able to speak with you, we'll be happy to send you an introductory packet so we can start your checklist and visit our website at DougAndLinda.com. And we're so happy that you're joining us on Money Matters.
3: I got a question this week and then found an article in regard to inherited IRAs. So I thought I would read what I thought are some good points that you need to know in case you have inherited an IRA. In the Kiplinger report, Rachel Sheedy answers uh, some of the pertinent points that you must remember in regarding making the most of an inherited IRA. Inheriting an IRA comes at one of the most tumultuous times in life when you're dealing with the death of a loved one. But decisions you make about how to handle the account can make a big difference in how much it will be worth to you. If you inherit the IRA from a spouse, you have the most options, including the right to simply claim the account as your own. Non spouse heirs don't have that opportunity. Instead, there are strategies that you must know about and then consider. First, you will need to retitle the account. Because you can't roll the money into your own IRA, you must create a properly titled Inherited IRA. It must include the name of the decedent and the beneficiary, clearly identifying who is who. For example, the account could be retitled to Mary Smith, Deceased, January 1, 2016, IRA for the benefit of Joe Smith. You should also name successor beneficiaries. If you wanted to stretch those benefits of the tax shelter over your own lifetime, you must take annual withdrawals based on your life expectancy, beginning no later than the end of the year after the year the original owner died. Those distributions are taxable from the inherited traditional IRA. You must withdraw... Now, if you didn't do that, you must withdraw the entire account within five years of the owner's death if he died before age 70 and a half, or if he died past that age, you must use the deceased owner's life expectancy to make distributions. Sometimes you will need to split an IRA. While an owner can name multiple IRA beneficiaries, it can pay off for those heirs to divide the IRA after the owner's death. If they remain together on the inherited IRA, the life expectancy of the oldest beneficiary must be used to calculate the RMDs. If each beneficiary set up an inherited IRA so that his or her own life expectancy comes into play. This would be particularly important when there are large age differences between heirs. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. So, for example, if you had a 60-year-old son and a 22-year-old granddaughter and they were named heirs to a traditional IRA, separating those accounts would set the 22-year-old's first RMD at about 1.5% of the account balance compared to her dad, who would have to take out about 4% withdrawal because he's 60. That means more of her money can stay in the account to grow tax-deferred. The IRA must be split By December 31st of the year, after the year the owner dies, and each heir can then devise a personal investment strategy and then must name their own beneficiaries. Now, what about the payout to a non-person? If you are named as an heir along with a charity or another non-person entity, you'll want to pay off that share no later than September 30th of the year following the owner's death. Otherwise, you'll lose the chance to stretch the IRA over your own lifetime because all assets must be dispersed within, the five, within five years of the owner's death if the owner died before age 70 and a half. If the owner died after that age, you'd have to take an annual withdrawal based on the decedent's remaining life expectancy, and this is set up by the IRS tables. Now, another thing to know is that you can also just turn it down. What if you think the IRA could be better maximized by the next beneficiary in line? If you, as the heir, do not desire the income or the additional asset, you can disinherit your interest in the IRA. For example, let's say a daughter may be the primary beneficiary from her uh, father's IRA, but decides she wants her children, who were named as contingent beneficiaries, to inherit the IRA. They could stretch distributions out longer and perhaps pay tax on the money in a lower tax bracket. The daughter could disclaim the IRA and it will pass to the contingent beneficiaries. The heir disclaiming must typically do so within nine months of the original owner's death, and the heir cannot have taken control of the assets before deciding to disclaim the inheritance." If you decide you don't want the IRA, you can't simply pick someone to take your inheritance. Instead, follow the path on the beneficiary form to see where the money will go before making this irrevocable decision to disclaim the money. This is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Let's see. I think we have Ray from Carrie on Hold
1: Ray, this is Doug Lewis, Deborah Lewis, Linda Lewis. How can we help you this evening?
5: Hello, gentlemen and ladies. Got a question for you.
1: Fire away.
5: Very much appreciate your show. It's great. Thank uh, you. Just real simple question for you. This is certainly less complicated, I think, than what you normally deal with. But to make a long story short, um, father passed away. Um, mom, of course, is still here, thank God. And she's got the house, but she wants to, you know, basically, since I've been the caregiver for years, um, and, you know, for lack of a, a better explanation, she, you know, the property she wants to leave to me. Okay. Um, and, you know, the house and everything basically in it. Wanted to find out, um, is there a better situation tax-wise to do that? In other words, instead of just having it in the will that it is for me, um, is there something that, that she should be doing or me, uh, who is the power of attorney, um, for her? Um, that would help that situation when unfortunately the day comes where that occurs.
1: Right. Very good question. We get it a lot with our clients. Uh, Deborah, you want to start off?
3: Uh, Yes. There there are going to be two questions. Uh Uh, The first is going to be, is it going to make a difference if you get it now or you inherit it? And Doug, that's usually where we begin the conversation.
1: Right. We have to get basis and we have to deal with the step-up in basis rules. First of all, what did the house cost?
5: The house cost, originally, they bought it uh, $96,000 here in Cary, North Carolina, and I think they paid about $153,000 for the house. It's all right. Probably and, worth, at least as far as I can tell right now, in this crazy environment, somewhere in the neighborhood of about two fifty.
3: All right. All right, uh, so that's going to be what we call your basis.
1: Right. No, the basis is 153000 Yes,
3: sir, 153000 What they paid is going to be what you call your basis. All right.
1: Okay. So now we have to understand that... If she were to give you the house today, Correct. which she could do by deeding it over to you, mm-hmm. then she gives you the value of the home, which is 250000 and she gives you the basis also of 153000 Okay. Now, if you later on, after she passes away, mm-hmm. if you later on sell it, then you will pay tax on
3: $100,000 of capital gains... Assuming that we were just going to use your appreciated value of what it's worth today, two
1: hundred and fifty. Right, right,
5: so
3: that right. one hundred thousand.
1: So that's about twenty. Out. Yeah, it's about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars of and, taxes.
5: And I don't mean to interrupt you. It, it, the, the you know the situation would be for sure um, without getting into too much because I know we only got so much limited time here. Is that um, you know when she does pass away, um, I am in a financial position. I'm uh, you know partially disabled. Um, and so it would be a situation where I could not afford to keep this house, which I would love to do, but it would be an immediate sale.
3: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000.
1: Okay. Okay.
3: Way,
5: I'd have to. I'd have to get out.
3: All right. Very good. All
1: right. So now Deborah's going to tell you the All way right. to sell a tax break. So
3: Ray, yeah. the best thing in your situation, it appears to be, just from the little bit we we know right now, sure. is that if you were to instead were to inherit it mm-hmm. at her death,
1: instead of receiving instead of it as as receiving gift.
3: it as a gift during her lifetime, right, you get an immediate step up in basis, meaning. At her death, mm-hmm. you would receive an asset that would be worth the fair market value or, or, you know, as of her date of death. Sure. So now you would have received an asset with a basis of 250000 $250, And a value of 250000 right. And a value of 250000 So when you needed to sell it, you know, a month later after everything's, you know, settled sure. and everything, right. you now would pay zero. Really? Yes. Taxes interesting if you because if, if we know that the end result is whether it's just a not needed home or we sure. need the assets home if that if there's definitely that situation we want to inherit the asset we want to get the step up in basis
5: so really the only expenses that i should incur yes. when, once this occurs is obviously you know the usual stuff that occurs but if i hire a, a real estate agent and he gets his or he or she gets the um, you know the usual six percent or whatever it is um you know is, is there any other besides? You know, well, the only any,
3: other question I would have is, I mean, unless there's a mortgage on it, but yeah, you just sell it is. and keep the proceeds. There is. Then you. How then much is the How much is the mortgage on it now?
5: Yeah, that's that's the the sad part is that uh, you know I would say at this point the house, like I said, is is probably worth two fifty, and the um the amount that's owed right now is probably about one hundred and thirty.
3: All right,
1: so we take. We, 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 we take these three points one at a time. Mm-hmm. First of all, at death, let's say, God forbid, she died this year. Right. All right. $250,000 mm-hmm. is, your, is your home, the fair market value. All right. right. The basis, of course, has been stepped up. So the basis goes from $153,000 to 250000 So zero tax as far as capital gain to the IRS. There's nothing owed to the IRS. Now, okay. what about the mortgage company? Okay, right. the they mortgage comes off. Obviously, that's right. They want their portion, which is oops, I lost my number. How that's much? Say
5: okay, about one hundred and thirty or something. like One hundred and thirty thousand.
1: That's right. So you get. So you would end up with one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. There'd be no other cost. There might be a little bit of real estate taxes that are owed on it if she hasn't paid the taxes right. on it. Uh, and as you say, the uh, uh, the commission to the real estate broker, but there's no tax. Right
3: taking in those three points Doug there's no way he would want to have it received during her lifetime I mean oh, no, the, no. with, you don't with want, the mortgage yeah. and the tax you would have eliminated anything and you obviously
5: you want to step up in basis right, right so the bottom line is is leave it just the way it is yes sir in the will just that's that
3: that's right that way that way mom takes care of you after you've been taking care of her
1: by Got the it. way you can avoid probate if you haven't already done so by putting it in joint ownership with you and herself but still it's in her name
3: gotcha
5: Very good. You guys are very helpful. I appreciate your time.
3: You're welcome. Thank you for calling tonight. Well, Doug, mutual
2: funds are one of the most practical and easy ways for people to invest for long-term goals, such as college or retirement. And I know that there are some common questions about mutual funds that people have.
1: Common questions like what, Lynn?
2: Well, the basic one is, what is a mutual fund?
1: Well, you know, I never thought of people asking that question, but it's a good question, obviously. What is a mutual fund? A mutual fund, Linda, is a regulated company that pulls together money from many individual investors through the sale of shares and in turn buys stocks or bonds on behalf of the shareholders. Now, the price of those shares is called the net asset value, and that will increase or decrease depending on the current value of the different stocks or bonds in the mutual fund. Shareholders may receive income from their mutual fund, or they may profit or lose when they sell their shares, just as they would by investing individually in stocks.
2: Well, Doug, why should a person invest in a mutual fund? What are the advantages?
1: All right. Well, I guess the first advantage everybody uh, should be realizing is it offers diversification, Linda. It's the old story of don't put all your eggs in any one basket because a single mutual fund might hold 100 or 200 stocks and bonds. So you could buy $10,000 of a mutual fund and have 100 stocks instead of putting $10,000 into one stock. Now, the second advantage, I guess, is the one of management professional management. You've got someone managing those stocks and bonds.
2: Right. And, and what are some of the other advantages?
1: Well, I guess some of the other advantages, Linda, are they're cheap to get into. Also, you can reinvest. Not a lot of stocks let you reinvest the dividends, but you can do automatic reinvesting of your dividends, which lets you compound your return. And of course, you can always get out. They're liquid. They're liquid investments. So I guess these are the main advantages of a mutual fund. People also
2: wonder, Doug, are mutual funds insured like CDs or savings accounts?
1: That's something you always need to remind clients is, no, they're not insured. Mutual funds are not federally insured, even if they happen to be sold through banks. The investment return is not guaranteed, and you can lose money if you sell your shares for less than you paid for them. But mutual funds don't make loans like banks do, and they are closely regulated, so the risk of a mutual fund actually going broke is extremely small.
2: If this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919 That's 919-USA-7000. One other common question that people uh, have, Doug, is, are all mutual funds similar?
1: Well, that's a good question also, Linda. No, they're not similar. Mutual funds have different investment objectives and different levels of risk. For example, some try to generate lots of current income, while others shoot for making big profits on fast-growing stocks. Funds have become very, very specialized these days. Some invest only in tax-free municipal bonds and big company stocks for other funds and corporate bonds for other funds, U.S. government securities, small-cap stocks, gold, silver, internationals foreign countries, all kinds, even special sectors of the economy, like healthcare care funds and technology funds. Yet, even still, there are funds that try to embrace lots of different categories. So, no, all mutual funds are not similar.
2: Now, how many different funds should a person own? I mean, how does a person determine how many funds they should have?
1: There are probably as many answers to that question as there are stockbrokers and financial planners, Linda, but my own advice is is that, number one, it depends on your own investment goals, the amount of money you've got to invest, the time that you have to watch your funds. Overall, you should have an asset allocation model superimposed upon your portfolio with a uniform unit size.
2: And I guess more important than that is how does one pick a mutual fund? I mean, how does a person go about picking, choosing which one they should have?
1: Well... I'm prejudiced, but I think with the help of a certified financial planner, you need to also be sure of the fund's objectives, the degree of risk. Make sure they match your investment goals and your comfort level. You want to compare the fund's total return on each invested dollar with similar type funds, preferably over a five- or ten-year period. Uh, Of course, past performance is never a guarantee of the future, but it's a guide. You want to look at the fund's fees and their expenses. Both the upfront sales charges and also the ongoing management fees and how they compare with similar funds. And you also want to most importantly know, has the fund management been consistent with its stated objectives?
2: And another common question that people uh, wonder about mutual funds is, should a person invest in just one fund family?
1: Well, I personally think a fund family uh, is better than buying individual funds, and as long as the fund family offers you all that you need for the size of your portfolio and the unit size you're using, that's fine. Then you may, if not, have to pick a second family or maybe a third family. But I usually try and stay within one family as my base when designing a portfolio, Linda.
2: What's the difference between current yield and the total return?
1: It's an important thing to know the difference between the total return and the current yield because these terms are advertised, and most people see little numbers out there they say, "Well, you know such and such a mutual fund has done eighteen percent, fourteen percent for this fund and so forth. When you hear those numbers, Linda, what is that what do you think of right away? Current yield, yeah, but that's not current yield at all. see. That confuses people. That is total return. Would it shock you to know that that current yield is only 1%? The difference in current yield and total return is a crucial thing to understand, and the current yield is really the dividend income coming off it. Never think that you're reading current yield when you hear these and read these numbers. That's the growth portion of the portfolio. Very, very different.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000.
3: Well, Doug, what else is on your mind tonight in regard to financial planning topics, things that might have come up in the news or media or that you've been reading?
1: Well, you know, Deborah, since we opened up this program, what year was it? 19- 1989. 1989. Uh, the media has has done something very strange. Uh, There has been more and more, I hate to say false information being peddled out there, but uh, there is this matter of fixed index annuities, and there was an article exposing these in the Wall Street Journal. The article was entitled, The Fallacy of of believing some returns are risk-free,
3: by one of our most respected authors, Jason Zweig. That was Jason Zweig. Yeah. That's who it was. You know, he really he was uh, really talking about these fixed annuities from a very um, academic point. But many investors are chasing further gains, and some are trying to shortcut or stop potential losses.
1: What the the, the media is reporting, or what these ads are saying, a lot of them on the radio. It says, well, you can do that with what's called a fixed index annuity, a cross between an insurance contract and a market tracking index fund. Such a product typically is offering the public a minimal guaranteed annual return, along with an assurance of no losses in years when the stock market drops. In exchange, it delivers less than the full gain on stocks in years when the market goes up. Unfortunately, that upside is usually about 2% maybe. Hmm. It know, may also assure retirement income and some protection against inflation to boot. So that's well, Doug, p- yeah, pitch. yeah,
3: Yeah, unfortunately, these annuities are often marketed so aggressively that you could be fooled into thinking you can get stock-like returns at no risk. And this just isn't true. You can't. Yeah, if you buy a fixed-indexed annuity, you have to lock up your money, often for 7 to ten years, and sometimes even longer. And if you need your capital before then, you'll you will have to withdraw, usually being subject to a surrender charge or a penalty that can run up to or even exceed ten percent of the account's value. So it's 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 not as it's being portrayed. That's right.
1: That's exactly right. The the focus there is on what I call the eggs, but your chicken is locked up. You want to get your chicken back? Then you got as much as a ten percent. A uh, surrender charge or haircut to take. Now, another risk is what we call the opportunity cost, the additional money that you could have made by not buying the fixed indexed annuity in the first place. While the annuity does put a floor under your potential
3: losses, it also puts a ceiling on any potential gains. Oh, well, that's not good. The money, pe- the, and many people who buy these products as a kind of stock market play for cowards have the wrong idea. Fixed annu- indexed annuities are not an alternative way to investing in stocks. And no. many people believe that. That's right, they do. They're not. They're not. Give us a call at 919 872 7000. We look forward to meeting with you. They have completely different
1: risk and reward components. They're an alternative to other fixed-dollar investments. That's what they are. So they, they, they compete with CDs and treasury bills. Often, however, these products are marketed as if they were the investor's dream come true, offering the upside of the stock market with no downside. The marketing message that's pitched out there is, you'll make plenty of money if stocks go up while losing nothing if they go down.
3: Yeah, I mean, even some of the other shows on on WPTF, uh, you know, presented as if it were this this uh, this upside potential only, and it's just not true. It's not true. Some insurance companies and their agents often will use charts showing hypotheticals, but not actual returns, and they're going to use these hypothetical charts that to imply that someone owning the annuity would have continuously earned the rate in, the, in place at the end of the period. And that's not true. Any chart based on these assumptions is just pure nonsense.
1: So really, a fixed index annuity might make sense if you crave certainty, if you can't bear the thought of losing money, you don't mind tying it up for a decade or so to earn a middling, piddling, assured return for the rest of your life. It makes no sense at all as a way to keep pace with the stock market at no risk, And I'm really glad that Jason Zweig and the Wall Street Journal decided to write an article exposing them.
3: And you know, when you hire a certified financial planner like us at Lewis Financial Management, Doug Lewis... Deborah Lewis, both certified financial planners, you don't have to worry about being sold something that is in someone else's best interest and not at all about what you need, what your in retirement need might be, and is just playing on all these fears of what they can sell you in a product that is trying to act like it would uh, eliminate these fears and all of the risks that might be uh, inherent to you making these decisions.
1: I was really happy this past year that several listeners had already sort of uh, bitten the bullet a little bit and uh, bought or getting ready to buy a fixed index annuity, but then came to see us to get an independent analysis of what was this product.
3: You make a good point because there were several people this year. There were. And um, if you're one of those... Listening tonight, give us a call at nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. Call us this week. Make an appointment. We're at nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. Lewis Financial Management will help you evaluate what you've been looking at, and uh, we'll help you answer that question.
1: All right, let's take Mike's call. Hi, Mike. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
6: I had a. I have. I'm full time employed, but I also have a small business on the side. Yeah. And I have used diversion at a very limited, uh, to a limited extent, to divert money to my kids, particularly when they do things to help out in the business. Uh-huh. I've always wondered what the standard is. How much can I pay them? Can I overpay them as if they were a congressman
1: or something like that? Well, let me get a little bit of information about yourself, Mike. How old are you?
6: Fifty-five.
1: You're fifty-five years old, and you're married with children? Correct. All right. Are your kids, how old are your kids? Uh, youngest is twenty. 20, and uh, and how many children do you have? Three. All right, 20, and then you've got two others that are older. Right. All right, none of them are living at home? One. Okay. A the, the 22-year-old. Okay, 22-year-old the, is the living. The two younger are in school still, full-time students. All right, uh, and what's your income, Mike? Uh, it's high. I need some numbers. Uh, if you're a first time listener, we we only work with numbers on this program. I, mean, I just solve yeah. problems. Are you saying
2: of... three hundred thousand or?
6: Uh, I, I guess uh, probably I, I
1: can't do that.
2: Well, we could just ballpark it. Uh,
1: over one. Okay. Okay. Uh, All right. So your 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 gross or your net income is over a million. Uh, no, 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 no. A hundred thousand. Sorry. Oh. Okay. A like hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah. All right. A hundred thousand dollars. All right, yep. so you've got a gross income or a net income of 100,000. Gross That's your gross income. all right. And how much of that comes from the business? Probably 15: 15. 15,000 comes yeah. from the business, and does the business have any expenses? Because that, that 15,000 is gross, right?
6: Yes, and 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 yes, there are some expenses, uh, and 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 I do a good job about maintaining those and writing them off. But as I say, it's it's extra money that I really don't want to have to pay taxes on because of self employment, and that's why I'm interested in how that could be diverted legally.
1: Well, it's it's not a matter of how much. Uh, the real question is, what is the child doing for the business?
6: uh he it's a service-based business and he contributes he provides services to the
1: business okay so uh, do you give him an hourly wage yes all right well uh i would say give him the comparable hourly wage for the type of comparable person uh that you employ in a comparable position right that's you know that, that that's a, it's a very simplistic answer but i believe in not trying to play games with the irs
6: Oh, and I'm total in total agreement, which is what I have done. But I guess the question uh, becomes, and I have had accountants in the past who have had different feelings about how liberal you can be with the amount that you pay them. Uh, and, and they tell me that the IRS really doesn't get involved that much in what the hourly wage is. So I've never taken a chance in doing anything but straight by the book. My question was, could I... Could I pay twice whatever the market rate might be? I mean, is the IRS going to say, wait a minute, you shouldn't be paying that much money to an employee, contract employee? Give the, they get 1099.
1: Yes, they have the right to do that. The IRS has the right to do whatever they want.
6: Well, I know that. I'm saying, but what's the likelihood? And, and well, I years. mean, you're,
1: you're, 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 that's like asking me, do you, I do I think you're going to get audited? That's you know, that that's not this type of program that we're on here. We solve financial problems. We don't try and go ahead and tell you how you can uh, play games with the IRS. My view is. Uh, that you just be very conservative. Don't try and go beyond because if the IRS audits you, then you're guilty. As far as I'm concerned, I of never. What? I, I, that, that's uh, the question. Guilty of what? Of whatever they say. If they say you owe X amount, then you then that's what you're going to pay for
6: overpaying for for paying someone fifty an hour instead of twenty five an hour.
1: Right. Or for for with maybe they want documentation. How many hours yeah. did he work? Did you keep timesheets? Yeah. Uh, and so on. Yeah. Uh, I know many a time in our in, in our firm, uh, we have hired our children, and our children have punched time clocks, and they just right. and they and they there's no uh, they don't get paid any more than any of the other employees there.
2: You know, part of it is you don't want uh, you don't want jealousy with your other employees that are probably you know have skills skill sets higher than your your kids. But I can understand your your feeling of wanting, you know, to do the max on what you can pay your kids. So
6: no, I, I've always gone straight by the book. I I got audited in 1982, and they had okay. to give me money back. Okay, so right, Mike, well, if
1: you want to call the office for an appointment, we schedule appointments during the week, yeah. call the office, and if we can answer any more questions then my secretary said at a time, we get together face-to-face, and I'll go through all the numbers and look at your tax return. Thank you very much. You Thank you, Mike. And-
3: Thanks for calling. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to set up an appointment to speak about your situation. 919-872-7000.
1: You know, Deborah, many years ago, when we opened up this radio program uh, and began uh, receiving callers and clients coming to the office, uh, the concept of a young pre uh, young couple getting married was almost unheard of coming for financial advice. But as you say, it's very different now. We're seeing a, a number of younger ones looking for, what, of course, is wise financial advice?
3: You know, it really is. And it's probably just a function of the fact that people are accumulating assets before marriage. They're getting married later in life. And they're seeing more and more people, some in their families, some in their friends, who are getting divorced. And maybe some of those those impacts have made them think financial uh, advice is something that they definitely really need to get. And it's a good way to start a marriage and to start the relationship off uh, in a healthy way.
1: Yeah, a lot of these uh, uh, peers of my own financial planners who offer premarital financial planning say they work with couples beyond the nitty-gritty details such as who's going to pay the bills and where the couple's going to pool their money or keep their accounts separate. They're taking on more of a counseling role to help couples deal with the emotions that can complicate financial decisions. For example, the stress that can strain a relationship In a newly married couple, when one partner decides or tries to exercise too much monetary control...
3: You know, when Cheryl Monk was writing this article, she was interviewing a whole bunch of uh, CFPs and financial planners and different advisors, and I'd have to say, I agree with the next quote. We are more psychologists in this position than we are actually financial planners when we're dealing with young couples. You know, it's the root of so many problems in couples' relationships. It does come out in these meetings that you have uh, with our clients.
1: And that's been our experience through the years, uh, in the later years, that we do end up Very often in the realm of being a counselor, like a psychological counselor, the first thing, of course, they find out is there need to be no secrets.
3: If you want to accumulate enough to be financially independent... Call me, Deborah Lewis, at 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000.
1: For the process to work, couples should be willing to openly discuss their spending habits, their assets, their liabilities, their financial goals. Because if you have secrets in a marriage, that's not going to help your marriage. Only when people are open about how they feel can inevitable differences be addressed. Uh, There was a financial planner named Renee Kwok who was cited in the article. She was a CFP, and uh, she was working with a young couple who planned to buy a house, but they had very different views on how much to spend.
3: Yeah, the future bride was much more frugal than her fiancé, and it was an emotional sticking point. She talked to the couple and talked them through the different scenarios and ran financial projections, and then she asked the young man to consider how spending less would be more prudent, and how it would ease his fiancé's anxiety. The couple ultimately decided to take a more conservative approach based on the future bride's concerns. And these meetings were a real forum for creating a compromise because you see people's emotional reactions.
1: Yeah, what was Chuck's caller? He said... uh... Valium,
3: No, I said, yeah, well, we do. We sort of add a a sense of, you know, here's what one person is feeling and here's what this financial decision is going to make the other person feel so that we can sort of be a salve on that possible wound.
1: I'll never forget the one couple. (laughs) I won't mention their names, but they will chuckle if they're listening tonight because this was about 20 years ago when she and he sat in my office for their first meeting. And I remember she said to him. He said to her, do you really need to have 30 pair of shoes? And she turned to him and said, well, what about all those golf clubs?
3: <laughs> right. So it does bring stuff up, whether you're getting married uh, in the future or have been married for a long time. Financial issues bring this up.
1: Yeah. Some people have no idea how much the other person spends well, how much credit card debt he or she's carrying. And they're really surprised when the information comes out during these types of discussions or consultations.
3: There was a young man who uh, actually went through this process, and he says that the premarital financial planning process got him and his now wife um, started on the right financial footing before going through the process. The couple hadn't even given any thought to saving for retirement or life insurance or, or any of these big issues that were going to come up. And he had been putting all of his money back into his business and didn't know how much of a profit he was making or how to calculate monthly living expenses or how to budget appropriately. And now after going through it, he feels that premarital financial planning is so important that he encourages his friends and his employees at his own company to take the time to do it.
1: Yeah, it's been an effective way for the couple and other couples that he knows to gain a shared understanding of their individual and their mutual financial goals and to save for the future. So if this is your situation out there and you are young and thinking of getting married, don't feel financial planning isn't for you. Call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. And we will schedule a personal consultation for you. And I would say this to parents of young ones. Uh, we've had a number of parents over the last couple of years who have felt they'd like to give such a consultation as a present to their children.
3: So that they have the financial footing to start their life on the right foot. Exactly. You know, what's interesting about many of the questions that we get in regard to uh, either after the show or during the week when we're at the office is really wrapped up in the question of retirement planning and often rooted in common misconceptions that people have either heard or thought about or um, been told or, uh, you know, just have been have been sort of absorbing and not concentrating on how whether or not they apply to them or they don't apply to them,
1: you know, Deborah, i'm I'm glad you bring up that subject because probably at least 50% of the meetings we have at our office for consultation, somewhere in the first 10 or 20 minutes of the meeting, I hear a statement like, well, I've always been told or I've always heard. (laughs)
3: Well, isn't it true you should? (laughs) Yeah, and
1: and, and these are these common misconceptions that are out there. Right. So I think it's a good time to hit
3: them. Let's hit them. Okay. Well, sometimes this conventional wisdom can steer retirement savers really wrong. So don't you, just follow the standard financial advice. You need to challenge it, and we've brought to light a couple of these of these challenges. One misconception is that the four hundred one k or IRA plan offers retirement income.
1: Yeah, vehicles like four hundred one k plans and IRAs are good ways to save because you do build tax-deferred savings. And if you simply follow the mandated required minimum distributions, you'll have retirement drawdown strategy.
3: So what's the problem with that? Well, while you're required to take distributions out of these plans, starting at age 70 and a half, it is not a retirement income strategy in the true sense of income, because withdrawals impact your total savings and are not truly income.
1: That's right. If we're just talking about withdrawals, that's getting your money back that you put in there. That's not really retirement income.
3: Now, what's another misconception, Doug? Well,
1: another one, of course, is that retirement calculators are accurate. When you research a plan for retirement, you're going to find many versions of devices that there are out there called retirement calculators. And it's okay to fill in the blanks and then let them provide a number.
3: So what could be the problem? Well, the calculators might give you a rough idea of how much money you must accumulate, but they won't address your personal situation or help you plan for guaranteed lifetime income. And that's, again, just saying, well, if they told me I needed to uh, have X amount of dollars, I should be fine. Many people find out they aren't.
1: I think of the thousands of personal consultations I've had through the years. I've never seen two personal situations which are (laughs) identical. No calculator is going to solve the personal situations.
3: And if you need advice, call me during the week. 919-872-7000. 9198727000. That's 9198727000. Another misconception is set your asset allocation and forget it. Big Most one. people know that you should make some make sure the money in your 401k or IRA is diversified. Your savings shouldn't be invested in just one type of asset class. Now, what's the problem?
1: Well, what the advice doesn't say is this. When you're about to retire, then you need to reconsider your pre-retirement asset allocation and add other choices to the mix. The plan that you developed when you were 35 certainly won't work at age 65.
3: That is so true. You know, another misconception is that all reverse mortgage strategies are bad. Yeah, the problem there is that retirees should consider
1: whether this option might provide benefits as part of a diversified retirement strategy. In moderation and properly managed a reverse mortgage can provide peace of mind in the form of tax-free cash flow for a retirement
3: plan. And I've seen that happen. Yeah. Another... Uh, misconception, Doug, is that financial advisors consider all options available. (laughs) Well, you better ask, has your financial advisor discussed asset allocation with you? How much of your money should be invested in stocks? How much in bonds? How much in mutual funds? How much in cash? Even real estate, how much should you have?
1: Yeah, so what's the problem? Well, advisors don't talk about comprehensive financial planning. What do you spe- what do you specifically do with your major sources of savings, your rollover IRA, your 401k, your personal savings, the equity in your home to create retirement income? Each of these has its own tax and other considerations. Just assuming that your financial advisor is considering all these ap- uh, options is a big misconception. Deciding how to use them most efficiently in your retirement income plan may be the biggest contributor to retirement income success.
3: So what's the bottom line? We would say that saving money is a simple but important concept. And as you approach retirement, it is just as important to determine how much income your savings can provide. So call us this week at 919-872-7000. Let us go through and help you with your financial decisions.
1: And thank you for listening us. And joining us tonight for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis, visit our website, dougandlinda.com. And remember, your money matters because your financial future
0: is at stake.